You know, I wonder if you felt the temptation at this point in our study through the Gospel of Luke um, uh, to think that this is just a waste of time. <laughs> um, I've heard people say things like, you know, why all of this theology? There is nothing like a Presbyterian to overthink things, right? Um, uh, frankly, I just believe in Jesus plain and simple. Well, in one sense, I think there's something admirable about that posture. I think the gospel is simple enough that even a child can understand its basic message. But I think when that notion becomes a um, sort of a life-defining posture for you, spiritually speaking, it's not a good thing. Simply for this reason that a lot of these issues that surround Jesus are easy to say that you just want to keep them simple. But the second that you make the slightest inquiry in what you mean by believe in Jesus, guess what? You're in the realm of theology. The theology is inevitable in that regard. A whole host of questions come up when you say that, not the least of which is, well, there's a lot of Jesuses out there. Which one do you believe in? And frankly, when you realize that we're talking about eternal truths and eternal destinies being in the balance, you really have to ask yourself a question as to whether or not it is a faithful posture to be dismissive of the idea of diving further into these topics. And actually, I don't know, having to work a little bit at thinking through it. You know, after a while, you begin to sound a little bit like the uh, pathetic husband who looks at his wife and is like, well, I told you that I loved you when we got married. You should have believed me then. You know, that wife has every reason to look and say, well, is that all? <laughs> do you want to know anything more about me? Do you, do you care about the things that I care about you? You know, it's very possible that this, this thought of like, I don't like theology, I just like Jesus plain and simple, is nothing more than an excuse to show that your love for him has grown cold, uh, that he's lost his relevance to you. Well, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because Luke chapter 9 represents a huge turning point in the action of Luke's gospel. Uh, and actually, every time it occurs in all of the other gospels as well, where Jesus finally identifies himself. He's outed. From this point on, he reveals himself as the Son of God come in the flesh. And so from this point forward, in each of what Bible scholars call the synoptic gospels, which just means a summary of the gospels, Jesus' tone changes. Uh, you know, he gets very explicit about his mission and very serious about what he knows is coming in his and his disciples' future. And so there's a lot of theology that's associated with it <laughs> uh, in the passage that we read. And, so, and, and I'm not going to lie, it's some heady stuff. But don't brush it off because it's a bit challenging. Don't brush it off. It's some place that I think would mine some wonderful things for us if we give it the time. So I'm going to look at three things that Jesus reveals about himself in these passages that we just read. Number one, we see that Jesus is God. Number two, we see that Jesus is Lord. And then number three, we see that Jesus is glorious. Okay? So first of all, Jesus is God. The whole title of the chapter could be, Who is Jesus? And it's the question that Jesus poses to his disciples. And after doing a sort of brief uh, public relations speculation, Peter, of all disciples, is the one who actually gets it right this time, believe it or not. He says that you are the Christ. You're the, you're the one we've been waiting for to lead us into salvation. Uh, that word Christ there literally translated means the anointed one. It's a translation of an Old Testament word uh, pronounced Messiah or Messiah, uh, which literally means the one that we've been waiting for. 
The, the Old Testament people of God knew that they were waiting for a salvation for God to bring that would be of the line of David, King David's lineage. So when Peter looks up and says, you're the Messiah, you realize what he does. Like He lays 2,000 years of ethnic identity in the lap of this man. You, you would have tried hard to have made a larger claim than what Peter just made. So huge, it seems, that Jesus chooses at this moment in his ministry to lead his disciples up on a mountain so that he can remove any doubt that he is the person who Peter just said that he is. In verse 28, Jesus comes and verifies Peter's admission, Peter's confession, by uncloaking himself in his heavenly appearance. (laughs) And not only that, two people from the Old Testament show up, a cloud comes around, and a voice from heaven speaks. So, when I tell you that this is packed, (laughs) I'm not kidding. Um, So let's start, though, with the first thing, and that's this cloud. What's the deal with the cloud? Well, if you know anything about the Old Testament, whenever the cloud showed up, it was God that showed up. When the Jewish people left Egypt for the first time, they were led by a cloud through the wilderness. Uh, At nighttime, that cloud turned into a great big ball of fire that led them during the night. Um, Later on, when Solomon would build the greatest of the Jewish temples, the cloud would fill in that place as well to where the priests couldn't even do their work. The bottom line was when the cloud showed up, you were there in the midst of a spectacular glory and awesome majesty of God himself. So the passage then is calling our attention to these Old Testament passages because the light that is coming off of Jesus is not bouncing off of him from another source. It's emanating from within, from his own glorious person. Hebrews 1 will say, He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. In other words, Jesus is saying, all of those clouds that you saw in the Old Testament, every one of them were just pointers, showing to me the final, ultimate version of what it means to know God. Now, I realize that for many of you in this room, you're thinking to yourself, yeah, Jesus is God. We got that. You, you realize the room that you're in less? That we all get that. We're all on the same page here, right? But actually, you would not know that if you talk to the upcoming generation. You do realize that the generation rising up is secularizing. And by that word, I simply mean that they don't have within their sort of natural framework the basic tenets of the Christian faith. And this one is just as much under assault as any other. You can say, well, Jesus was God, and people will be like, well, you know what? I can go with you that Jesus was a great moral teacher among many. Um, But you know what? To say that he's the Son of God, that feels a little bit out there. That's a little weird in that belief. There's a sense in which people today are kind of making Peter's mistake. You know, Peter looks around and he's like, Moses and Elijah and Jesus are all here. We now have the great grouping of all the best prophets in Israel. We should make tents and set up camp here. Which is why the voice comes down and is like, nope. Moses and Elijah are here to testify to who he is. We're not all on the same level. You listen to my son. He's the unique one in this group. And this generation is making sort of the same mistake. But C.S. Lewis was the first person to sort of unpack in the way in which only C.S. Lewis can. That the one thing you cannot say about Jesus is that he's one teacher among a lot of cool teachers. You just can't. Not with the kind of claims he makes about himself. You've probably heard this passage before, but it's fun to read, so let's do it again. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but don't accept his claim to be God. 
This is the one thing, though, we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says that he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool and spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him the Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open for us, and he did not intend to. You see the point. With the claims that Jesus is making, you can't say that he's a great moral teacher, because otherwise he's crazy. Look, Jesus identified himself as God, saying, look at my glory and believe what I'm telling you. If you know me, you will know God. There's no greater claim in that sense. The disciples must have thought at last, we have our champion. We have our person who's going to save us. But... Oftentimes, getting what you want is not what you thought, you thought you'd have. Which brings you to the second point. Jesus' claim was that he was God, but secondly, we find that Jesus was also Lord. Um, and to illustrate this, I want to do an illustration. Tim Keller uses this all the time. He puts it in one of his books from a seminary professor of his. That goes like this. He says, look, if the distance between the earth and the sun, which we know to be, what, 90, 92 million miles or something, were the width of a piece of paper, the thickness of a piece of paper, okay? Distance between earth and sun, piece of paper, right? Then the diameter of our galaxy would be a stack of paper 310 feet tall. Um, And our galaxy is less than a speck of dust in the part of a galaxy that we can even see with our present technology. And the part that we see might actually be the smallest fraction of what's actually there. So if Jesus is the Son of God, as we so casually assent, who holds, who holds all together with his word of his power? Is this really kind of the kind of person that you ask into your life to be your personal assistant? In verse 26, Jesus is saying that everything hinges on what you do with me and my words. Your relationship with me has to be totalizing, submitting everything to me. And he unpacks it by basically saying, I want you to consider two areas in which this is going to apply to you. The first one is this. He says, if you want to come and follow me, it's going to involve in your life a great no. (laughs) This is what Jesus says. He says, anyone who comes after me must deny himself. Isn't that a strange way to say that? Because Jesus is implying that there are going to be urges that emerge from within you, things that you want to do, that must be denied if you're going to follow him. What's the implication? He's saying, my followers don't trust themselves. They don't trust what comes out. Don't believe all of the things that rise from within the complex of motivations that is your heart. Don't believe them all. To follow me, you have to have a posture of yourself as a self-reflective skeptic. Just because I don't feel it doesn't make it... Just because I feel it doesn't make it the right thing to do. <laughs> now look, you don't realize this, this I don't think could be more countercultural for the generation that's rising up around us. Because every message from that generation is about following yourself, being true to yourself, uh, owning and living your truth. 
We are obsessed in Western culture with personal autonomy. Uh, Donald Carson, uh, is a New Testament professor at Trinity Seminary in Chicago, said this. He said, it is now sacred, holy that is, the right to choose my own identity, my own morality, my own truth, with no other real responsibility than to be true to myself. But Jesus says, no, coming to me means you deny yourself. Because if you don't learn to do that, you lose the structural ability, the cultural ability to create forgiveness in the first place. Um, speaking of Tim Keller, we had him to um, RUF staff training about two years ago, the campus ministry I used to work for, where he was talking about a mass shooting that happened among the Amish uh, uh, in Pennsylvania in 2006. You remember this story? It's horrific. A shooter had come into a schoolhouse and taken children as hostages, killing five little girls before turning the gun on himself. And what was crazy is that it was within hours of the shooting, the Amish community had come around the parents and the wife of the shooter to try to support them in their time of hurt. The reporters noticed that at the man's funeral, at the shooter's funeral, half of the people in the congregation were the Amish that he had just committed that act into. And of course, the reporters are freaking out. People have written books about how in the world this was possible. Where... Do you get that, that kind of overwhelming power to forgive? Well, Keller's point is that if all you have to live for is your own sense of your own value, then there's no reason why we could ever expect that kind of self-sacrificing love and forgiveness that those uh, Amish people demonstrated. Why? Because forgiveness requires the highest self-sacrifice. Therefore, we have lost, Keller was saying, the cultural and spiritual infrastructure required to have any sense of self-sacrifice at all. And it begins with denying yourself, not trusting myself, and not giving sway to all of my internal whims that might rise up at any given time. It's no virtue to be true to yourself in Jesus' economy. So there's a great no, first of all. But secondly, as Jesus is Lord, and I couldn't think of a better way to word this, so forgive me for the wording. Jesus says refollowing him requires a fundamental change in your self-definition. Bear with me for a second. The majesty of Jesus' character is something that radically recenters your sense of self. Here's how he says it. If you seek to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose it for me, then you'll save it. That word life that Jesus translated is the Greek word suke, which means your inner life. It means your, your personality, the foundational who you are at the most basic level. So Jesus is saying, if I'm the Messiah, you're going to have to find your sense of self in a radically different way. But of course, the way we mostly do it is through our stuff, which is why he says, what profit is it to you to gain all of this stuff, but then lose your own soul? How could that profit you? What Jesus is identifying is this natural tendency to define ourselves by our things. <laughs> and look at, a, look at a passage that lands just two days after Black Friday for an illustration, right? Have you ever thought about like the, uh, the pull of Black Friday? I think about this all the time. Like, there must be some dopamine charge that goes off whenever, whenever like, you buy something new. Doesn't it just feel like getting better? Like your life is going to get better <laughs> when you go and buy this thing? But what Jesus is saying is, is these things have a way of kind of 
becoming the root of who you are. We can define ourselves by our things. They, they vie for our identity. But Jesus is saying, look, those things will pass away. Your stuff burns. It fades. The best relationships deteriorate. The most beloved family members die. The closest friends move away. It all passes away. But the nature of who I am will tolerate no rivals. Why? Because I'm the Lord. I'm the Lord, the majestic God. So that's the second thing, that Jesus is Lord. Thirdly, Jesus is revealed to us as glorious. Jesus is God, Jesus is Lord, and He's glorious. So here's my question. Who's up for that? Who's up for that kind of self-sacrificing life that Jesus talks about? Who's capable of it? But I think the key here is what happens right after Jesus gives those commands on the mountain of transfiguration, which is what theologians call this episode up on the mountain. The disciples are terrified by this thing. Why? Well, my guess is because two men who had been dead for hundreds of years show up and start hanging out with them. Might be a reason for a little bit of panic and fear, right? But I think this is a fascinating example of, 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 of what is being told here. What Jesus is trying to get at us is the appearance of these men. And I could lump their appearance under really one word. These men represented fulfillment to these disciples in at least two ways. One's a theological reason, the other one's a personal reason. Theologically speaking, Moses and Elijah show up as representatives of the Old Testament economy. Does this make sense? Moses is the one who gave the law. Elijah is the great prophet over all. Oftentimes we'll refer to the Old Testament as Moses and the prophets. Okay, So Moses and Elijah's presence there is saying, theologically, all that we did in the Old Testament is about this guy. But there's also a personal aspect when you begin to delve into the lives of Elijah and Moses. Because I would submit to you that these two men had what I would call questionable vocational uh, histories. Um, You know, Moses died without ever seeing the promised land. You want to know why? Because he hit a rock instead of speaking to it. No promised land for Moses. Elijah never got to see the repentance that he preached about and prophesied for over and over again. Neither of them sort of experienced the fulfillment of their lives. But here they are, and they're talking to Jesus. What are they talking to him about? When Ward read it, it said, he said they were talking to him about his departure. That word there translated departure is the Greek word exodus. Ah, now you see what they're talking about. You see, Moses only freed his people from economic suppression. Jesus is about to free his people from sin and death itself. Seeing Jesus was what Moses and Elijah's life was about. They didn't die as professional failures, like it looks like, because their life wasn't over at their death. You see, though, the culmination of their life here on this mountain. All of the lost elements that never came together finally come together in that place. So I've got a birthday coming up this week. Yes, he said shamelessly to remind everybody. But you know, the older that I get, I do find that there's this creeping, there's almost this creeping fear of the potential for a wasted life, at least the feeling of a wasted life. Like, is there anybody who gets to the end of their life and is like, oh yeah, I left it all on the field, you know? I gave wherever I could, and I sacrificed every earthly comfort for the advancement of Jesus' kingdom. 
Does anybody say that? And so what happens is it's almost like there's this inertia as you age to be tempted to think that it was all for nothing, that it was just futility. It crawls its way into our own hearts. But here, there's the deal. Jesus is saying, but earthly gain has never been what this mission was about. The whole point of your mission on earth was to get to me. And I realize that for many of you, you're not at a stage where you're thinking about that yet, but does the looming grave sort of give you the ability to neutralize some of those fears? Does what we have ahead of us in knowing that we will see Jesus eventually, which is what Moses and Elijah's life were about, does that have the ability to sort of work against those fears? I certainly hope so. Jesus is simply showing on this mountain that the trajectory of all God is doing in the world is in Him. And until you feel the power of that inertia, then we're not equipped for the task of following Him. Unless there's one more thing. And I want to finish with this one simple thought. Because how do you get that power inside of you? I didn't think it was a mistake that every commentator that I read mentioned the fact that in both of these instances, both both, uh, Peter's confession and the, uh, 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 the transfiguration, they both happen on the heels of prayer. Now look, there's a, a lot to say about prayer. We're not going to get into it here. But I want to submit to you this morning that prayer is the means by which we get Jesus' story into us. <laughs> now I don't know about you, but most of the struggle uh, in my prayer life um, is centered around you know, whether or not I'm praying at all. Um, and I miss what it is that I'm praying about, supposed to be praying about. Well, to take this example, we're to be praying to have the exact same experience that the disciples had on the mountain. I'm not talking about Jesus sort of showing up and glowing and things like that necessarily, but I am saying that we are here to pray through how wonderful that is. Because there's nothing more transformational in our lives that we could set our life's sights upon than seeing Him. Because if we are a function of what we love, if we are who we love, then to change what we love is to change our habits and our thoughts and our behaviors. And frankly, there's a lot of confusion that exists among Christians about this. You got some people that say, well, you know, lest the way in which you change and become what Jesus wants you to be, you know, self-denying and everything else, is you just got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Frankly, if you just weren't so lazy, that's what happened. You could finally see some change here, you know. And we do this all the time. The the frustrated wife tells the marriage counselor, you you know, I just know that if my husband really wanted to change, then he would. Really? You know, never mind uh, the very simplistic view of human nature. Uh, I don't think our sort of uh, desires are are anywhere near that easy to catalog. Um, But if you think that people always do what they want to do, Uh, go check out Romans 7 and come get back to me and see what it says about that. Others of you are not bootstraps people, though. You're more more a a sort of gimmickry people. (laughs) That is, you found a a magic Bible verse that if you just pray it, everything changes. Uh, Or or you found the the latest hot Christian book. Or you went on some retreat and suddenly, lo and behold, everything's different. But the Bible's approach to change... (laughs) In other words, the only way to achieve what Jesus is asking us, asking from us in verses 23 to 26, is by realizing that if I'm going to change what I love, that will only change through an affection transfer. You know, you don't have to be a marketing major to know 
uh, that our tendency is to sort of be drawn to whatever we find beautiful. If the public is sort of enamored with a certain automobile and you're supposed to create an advertisement for that, you know, there's a sure way to make sure that they'll stop buying that automobile. And that is to bring them a better automobile on the other side, right? The advertiser understand that they know that our actions will always follow suit because of this mechanism inside of us to lock onto the things that we find valuable. Well, it turns out the Bible has kind of known this all along. I want to finish with a little bit of a longish quote from an old essay that was written by a Scottish theologian named Thomas Chalmers. The essay is called The Expulsive Power, the power to expel something from your life, of a new affection. Listen to what he says. This is so good. He says, very seldom do any of our habits and flaws just disappear by the force of mental determination. But what cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed. The only way to dispossess the the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. A young man may cease to idolize the pleasures of the flesh, but it's only because the idol of wealth has gotten the ascendancy, and then he can discipline himself for prosperous business. How convenient. But there is not one of these identity transformations, listen to this, in which the heart is left without an object. Your heart has an object this morning. The heart's desire for one particular object may be conquered, but its desire to have some object is absolute and unconquerable. So it's never enough to hold out to your soul a mirror of its own imperfection saying, look how bad you are, soul. It's not enough to speak to your conscience of its follies, look at your foolishness. Rather, you must try, listen to this, every possible method of finding deep access to your hearts for the love of Him who is greater than the world. So the best method for that is prayer. The prayer that God gives us. But again, stop being so fixated on whether you're praying and be fixated on like, what am I doing here? Because the goal of the prayer is to see Him. Because seeing Him for who He really is is itself transformational. It changes us. So in the end, when we ask the question, who do you say Jesus is, and what do you do with that information, the answer is that we stand in awe of Him. We get lost in wonder, love, and praise. We stare at it. We read about it. We come in here on Sunday morning and sing about it. And in the end, we change. So the question is, is the theology worth it or not? Let's see. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, grant us the grace to be able to see. Heady stuff this is, Father, trying to understand how you are fully human and fully divine. How you showed up amongst us as as a man. Father, how you commanded all the things that you asked of us, but then gave us a vision of wonder and of glory that would draw us in with all of the Old Testament bearing witness that you were who you said you were. Father, it's it's almost too much to take in. And so we need your spirit here as we close to sing it well, to know it well, because we want to change. We need to change. And we need to see a different vision of you as we do so. We ask it all in Jesus' name.